Thank you. Okay, great to be back with you tonight. The snow is just about disappearing, isn't it? It's great. <laughs> well, it's great in some ways, I know. Sorry. Lots of young people looking at me very reproachful. What do you mean by that? Got to be back in school tomorrow morning. Yeah, I know, I know. Okay, but it's, it's nice for driving around anyhow. The, the A380 is no problem any longer. Let's read together from the New Testament, shall we? We're going to read from Hebrews chapter 9. Now, because you do all of your smarty drill on Sunday mornings, you probably know where that is. But if not, we're on page 1207 of the Church Bible. You didn't need to know that. Anyhow, Hebrews chapter 9. Last week, I think Mark Perkins was talking about the first half of this chapter. So we're in the second part of it, starting from verse 16. But I'm going to read from verse 15, because that's kind of like the, the hinge verse between his bit and my bit. So, verse 15, for this reason it says, but we'll ignore those words, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it Because a will is in force only when somebody's died. It never takes effect while the one who's made it is living. This is why the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood Of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Well, that's a complicated passage with some difficult words in it, but I think what it says is dead exciting. So let's just unwrap that a little bit together, and hopefully that will help us with our time of uh, breaking bread of communion later on. Let's just remind ourselves of where we are in the book of Hebrews, because it's a long book, and you can get lost if you're not careful. This is uh, my attempt to do a, a, a division of it anyhow. You might remember if you're here when I I introduced the whole thing, this was the outline that I suggested. The first five chapters just talk about how Jesus is absolutely central to everything in God's plan, in the universe, in creation, everything to do with our lives. He's not just a prophet. He's not just an angel. He's not just a messenger from God of some kind. He's not just a great example. He's absolutely essential. 
to everything that God is, is doing. And then, because Hebrews is a kind of book that, that keeps on kicking you in the pants, you have a, a chapter, chapter 6, where it says, don't get stuck, keep moving. Because the whole book is written to people who have become Christians from a, a Jewish background, some of them pretty nominal Jews by the look of it, because they didn't know some of the stuff that uh, the writer of Hebrews is explaining to them on the way through. But they were Jews anyhow, and they'd become Christians from that Jewish background, and now they had to make sense of it all. And because they were coming under persecution and strong, strong pressure to give up this Christian thing, stop being silly and go back and be proper Jews again, the writer to the Hebrews is writing to them and saying, look, don't give up. You've kept going so well so far. Don't let it peter out. Don't get stuck. Just keep moving. And so that's where chapter 6 comes in. Then you get a second bit of material in chapter 7 to 9 about the fact that God has got a whole new deal to offer which goes far beyond anything you got in the Old Testament, anything that happened before Jesus came. And then again, you get chapter 10 which says, don't get stuck, keep moving. And finally from verses uh, chapters 11 to 13, right at the end of the letter, you get three crisp chapters about, okay, this is how you live. If you want to keep going, this is the way you do it. So, right now, we are in that middle bit, and we're coming to the end of it tonight, and then you'll be on to chapter 10 when Tom Vaughan comes in, I think it's a couple of weeks or whenever. Um, So, we're in that bit, and uh, in that section, 7 to 9, we said earlier, there are three things that are talked about. In chapter 7, for instance, and when David Herring was here, he talked about this, it talks about Jesus being a better high priest And all the high priests in the line of Aaron who had ministered in the tabernacle and in the temple down through the years of the Jewish nation. Jesus is better than any of those. And it's a far better priesthood he's got. Because for one thing, he's got no beginning and no end. They're all dead, most of them, apart from the one that's working at the moment. And so the high priest keeps on being replaced and replaced and replaced. You will never replace Jesus, says Hebrews. He's a far better high priest than any yet. And uh, last week, uh, Mark was talking about the fact that uh, we have a new covenant. The covenant is the agreement between God and us. And uh, in the Old Testament, that involved, as we've seen in the reading tonight, lots of blood, loads of sacrifices, very messy business. And it meant doing it again and again and again, because you never had total forgiveness for all of your sins, past, present and future. Every year, you'd have totted up a new lot and you had to come and have have them dealt with once again and more poor animals had to die just to sort that one out. Now we've got a new covenant, a new arrangement whereby God not only forgives all our sins and sets us free from them forever, but also implants a new heart within us. And uh, we saw when we talked about uh, uh, chapter 8 that uh, the writer of the Hebrews uh, um, quotes Jeremiah 31, in which, looking forward to those days, 700 years ahead, Jeremiah says, I can see what God's going to do. He's going to put a new heart in you so that you want to do the things he wants you to do. It won't be a case of, oh, we're going to do this because God wants us to, otherwise some poor animal's got to die and we'll all get covered in blood again. Not that kind of stuff. (laughs) What it's about is God implanting desires inside you to do his will and nobody's going to say said jeremiah in those days oh if only i knew the lord or go to somebody else to get to know god a little bit through them because they'll all know me from the least to the greatest said jeremiah there'll be a living link a connection between us and so that's a new agreement in jesus because of his death 
Your sins can be washed away and you can have a new power inside you put there by the Holy Spirit and a new relationship with God, a friendship with God you'd never have had before Jesus came. So that was chapter 8. And then we're on to chapter 9 tonight uh, and uh, Mark spoke a little bit about that last time too. He talked about the first half of this and the fact that Jesus offers a perfect sacrifice. See, all of these sacrifices that were offered on the altars in years gone by were all incomplete because they had to do them again and again and again. And now Jesus, sacrificing himself, dying on the cross, has fulfilled all of those, those partial pictures from the Old Testament and done it once for good. And so the perfect sacrifice was what uh, Mark was speaking about last week. And you might just remember he used this picture as part of what he did. A donut tire. I must admit that's an American word I hadn't heard before, but I looked it up. And it's one of those tires that they use a lot in America. Not so much here, although you can get them across here, I think. They're sometimes called a a, a space-saving tire as well. Because of the kind of tire you can put on your car, if you have a blowout and you've got a a, a tire that's not functioning any longer, you take it off, you put on one of these, and uh, as you can probably see from this picture... Just a little bit anyhow, this, this Chevrolet is, it's had a bit of a bang and the tire's gone and so they put that blue tire on the front, which is one of those tires and uh, you can probably see it's a bit lower down, it's tipped a little bit over to the right because it's a much smaller tire than uh, the other tires that you'd normally have. I don't know why the Americans are so keen on space-saving tires. I mean, they've got massive cars, haven't they? They've got more, more space to put a full... Anyway, that's the way it goes. And Mark was saying last week, they're not very good tires, really. You couldn't get from here to Manchester or Liverpool on one of those because you're only supposed to drive 50 miles to 70 miles at the very outside on one of those tires. It's just supposed to get you to the garage. And so he was saying, the old covenant is a bit like that. The old sacrifices, that whole system, that was a way of getting you somewhere but not very far. And it was really just something that made you think about the real thing. <laughs> and he said, every time you look at a donut tire, you see something that's not supposed to be there. It makes you think about the real tire that you ought to have on there. And in the same way, he said, that's what the old covenant was like. It was a picture of the real thing. And it got you moving. It helped you understand certain things about God. And it brought forgiveness for a while. But it could never do the whole job. And he said, a donut tire is never going to take you into the kingdom of God. And... Um, Another illustration of that that I, I found in the commentary this afternoon, I just thought that I'd, I'd use this one as well, is the illustration of a banknote. I mean, there's a £10 note. You find one of those lying in the street and think, whoa, that's great. But actually, the paper is pretty valueless, isn't it? It's not worth anything much, or polymer or whatever it's made of nowadays. It's, it's not worth an awful lot. It's what it represents. It's what stands behind it. It's the gold reserves or whatever it happens to be of the the, the bank that's involved. And that piece of paper is really only a promise. Promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of whatever it happens to be. And it's the same thing with the old covenant, the old sacrificial system, all of those old sacrifices. They're only a promise. They're looking forward to a day when God is going to sort the whole thing out and bring about something much, much better. And of course... uh, If it's going to be uh, a valid promise, it needs to be representing something real. (laughs) This is a a nine-pound note. There is no such thing. I I made it myself with Photoshop. Okay, But, uh, you know, if you try to spend that in a shop, it'd be like that bit at the start of Coronation Street. Have you ever seen it? So, the new five-rouble note, get out of my shop! 
people are looking at me blankly. You need to watch more Coronation Street. Never mind, never mind. But, you know, the point is a banknote needs to represent something real. And if it does, then that's brilliant. And that's what Hebrews is saying. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. And what he does is absolutely real. So, I think there are three things to notice in the passage we've read tonight. The first thing is he talks about what it cost. This perfect sacrifice cost something. What was it? The second thing is how it came. How come this one is perfect and all of the others were incomplete? What has happened that's different this time around? And the third thing is what it confers. What does it bring to our lives as a result? So let's just look at those three things quite quickly. First of all, there's a question of what it cost. And this is verses 16 to 22, it seems to me. And he starts off by talking about a will. Suppose you make a will before you die. What happens with that will? Well, it probably sits behind the alarm clock on the mantelpiece until you die. And then people take it out and read it and act on it. But he says, in the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. If you haven't died yet, the provisions of the will don't apply. I mean, that's where the prodigal son got it wrong, wasn't it? When uh, he's, he, he said to his dad, Dad, when you die, you're going to leave me lots of money. Yes, yes, son, I'm going to leave you uh, everything that your elder brother doesn't get. That's a lot of money, isn't it? Yes, son. Well, can I have it now then? What a daft thing to ask. Um, but the whole story depends on that, on him saying that, that uh, incredibly impolite thing and getting his dad to do something he should never have done and give him that money. See, normally, you have to wait until somebody dies. And uh, Anthea and I are now busily engaged in spending all our money so we don't have to leave any to the grandchildren. But <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> not true, not true, no, just in case they listen to this tape. But, but that's the first thing, isn't it? Uh, this, this whole thing... Uh, is based on the fact that a death has occurred. And if God is going to ratify a new covenant with us now, if it's all going to happen, it's because somebody has died. And the writer goes on to say something else. Even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. Uh, And that, that means that a price has actually been paid. It costs something to kill all of those animals. And it costs something for Jesus to die on the cross. When you had to take the best animals out of your flock, the ones that had no blemishes and nothing wrong with them, and then kill them, just like that, you can imagine the kids standing by saying, why? That animal was my pet. Why has it got to die? And there's a cost to be paid when there's a sacrifice. And it talks about that in verse 15, doesn't it? Uh, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. He has died as a ransom. And you know what a ransom is? It's a price that's paid to set somebody free. Richest man in Britain used to be J. Paul Getty, who died a few years ago. And he was an American with a lot of money, and he was notoriously stingy. Uh, I could tell you some stories about him, but I won't. The the, the important one is this. When he was well-known to be very, very wealthy, his grandson, Paul Getty III, was on holiday in Italy. And he was kidnapped by a bunch of people who I think were never caught and held to ransom. And they sent a note to his family saying, we will set him free if you pay. And they named a vast sum of money. Otherwise, we will kill him. And so the family turned to Paul Getty and said, look, we've got to pay this ransom. We've got to set the kid free. And Paul Getty said, nope. If I pay any money, they'll just kidnap some more of my grandchildren. And I'll end up paying out and paying out and paying out. 
and he refused to pay the ransom. Until, that is, the kidnapper sent another letter in the post with an ear inside it. And it was his grandson's left ear. Ghastly. At that point, he decided he'd better pay something. And so he did. He paid the maximum amount he could claim back uh, from tax. (laughs) And that was as much as he was going to pay. At that point, uh, the kidnappers, thinking this guy is incredibly stingy, we're on a loser here, actually set Paul Getty free. (laughs) He didn't have a a very happy life after that. As soon as he was free, he tried to phone up his grandfather to say thank you for paying the ransom, and Paul Getty wouldn't even pick up the phone. A very twisted family. But anyhow, the important point about that story is a ransom meant he had to pay money. Something had to be paid in order for that sacrifice to be complete. And that's the point about the death of Jesus. He had to give himself willingly and go through the agony of the cross so that you and I could be set free. A death has occurred, a price has been paid, and that's why, says the writer to the Hebrews, all of that blood was involved in the the Old Testament. It was all pointing forward to the fact that blood was going to be shed on the cross. You might look at the Old Testament sacrifices in the book of Leviticus and think, this is repulsive, this is awful, it just reeks with blood. Why was God doing that kind of thing? Well, it was all pointing forward as a picture to what Jesus was going to do to bring the whole thing to completion. It's interesting that, uh, you know, very often when Messianic Jews become Christians nowadays, people who've been Jewish and suddenly realize that Jesus is the Messiah, when they become Christians, they're often much more interested in their Jewish past than they ever were before. And they start looking into the old system of what they used to believe and the sacrifices and the temple and the writings of the prophets and all sorts of stuff. Why? Because suddenly they've realized all of this stuff has a point. It's all heading somewhere. And I guess that's exactly what happened with the original writers of, uh, readers of Hebrews. They were people who'd been Jewish, and some of them had probably been pretty casual about it, because uh, chapter 9 has to tell them about uh, this, this is the furniture that was in the Holy of Holies, and this is the furniture that was in the first tower, and so on. Uh, and you wouldn't need to do that, I think, if they were clued up Jews. But clearly, some of them were fairly nominal. And uh, so the book is saying to them, listen, don't you realize all of this stuff out of your past? All of the religion in your background that you've never understood up until now, it all fits because Jesus is the missing piece of the jigsaw. Put him in the center of it, and suddenly it all makes sense. And some of them, I think, having, having uh, read Hebrews or, or listened to it being read to them, would have gone back to explore their past with completely new eyes because they suddenly started to realize the cost of their redemption had been predicted through all of these sacrifices down through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It was that important. And so what we're celebrating tonight through the bread and wine is nothing casual. It's nothing small. It's the biggest cost that was ever paid in the history of the universe. And everything in the whole Bible is straining to point us towards that moment when Jesus paid that sacrifice price for us. So that's what it cost. How about the second thing? Oops, I better press the right button here. Second thing is how it came. And that's verses 23 to 26, where the writer of Hebrews says, It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. In other words, the sacrifices had to happen to make purity possible because they didn't understand it completely, but they knew that blood and purity were somehow 
connected with one another. In verse 22, he says, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And that's exactly right. If you read through the Old Testament law, you'll find there are one or two things that can be cleaned up with fire or with water. But for most things, according to the law, the cleaning process involves blood. And he says, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. You know, there are some things that can be cleaned up with fire and water, according to the Old Testament law. But you can never get forgiveness for sin without blood being involved somewhere along the line. So he says, the, the, the copies of the heavenly things, these sacrifices, those holy places, the sanctuary, all of that kind of stuff, it needs to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves, the reality has to be purified with better sacrifices than these. You can't purify humanity forever. You can't sort out the universe by sacrificing a few bulls and goats. It's got to be something far more precious than that. Those things are just pictures. And so he says, what does actually make that happen? Well, if you look at the picture of the the high priest and what he does when he's offering sacrifices in the old system, to get people's sins forgiven. What's the difference between him and Christ? And he talks about three differences here, I think, in these verses. The first thing is, the high priest and Jesus go to a different place from one another. The high priest on the Day of Atonement every year is allowed to go into the Holy Holies, that special bit of the temple where nobody goes but him once a year. I must admit, I often think, who dusts it? (laughs) What does it look like? He only goes in there once a year, but I shouldn't probably think like that. Anyhow, um, he's only allowed to go in there, and he can stand before God because he's protected from God's holiness by the fact that animals have died. But he can only be there for so long, and then he has to come out again. And then people will sin again, and he will sin again. And he has to take in uh, more uh, sacrifices and offer them to God. And all of this stuff goes on and on and on. And it says here, Jesus did not enter a man-made sanctuary like the Holy of Holies that the high priest goes into. He entered heaven itself. And Jesus has gone to heaven, into the very presence of God into the very place that the Holy of Holies is just a faint earthly picture of. And he's not coming out. He's gone there for keeps. He stands before God's presence now on our behalf. He's there as our representative before God. He is coming back, but that's another issue. We'll get to that one in a moment. He's got a permanent place in God's presence. The high priest couldn't dare to stand there for more than than a few minutes. That was all he was allowed in the whole of of the year. And yet Jesus is there constantly in God's presence and he's representing you and me. That's pretty fantastic. The second difference was that the, the, the high priest on earth offered a different sacrifice. It was just animals. And it wasn't his own blood, the passage points out, that he took in there. I mean, he did. It was still in his veins, but he wasn't going to sacrifice it. It was the blood of animals. And it's just a pathetic substitute for the real thing. Jesus on the other hand, sacrificed himself. And uh, it's because he was willing to do that uh, uh, that that he becomes uh, our, our sacrifice. The high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. And if Christ had been uh, like that, he'd had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, says verse 26. But now he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Different sacrifice. And the third thing, of course, is a different result. (laughs) 
Because what's happened is that Jesus' sacrifice is complete. With the high priest, there must have been a great feeling of relief the day after the Day of Atonement. It's all white clean. It's all finished. We're standing perfect before God once again. Until before lunchtime, somebody tells a lie, somebody swears, somebody does something wrong. And, and it all starts again. And forgiveness is needed one more time. It doesn't take very long until the whole thing unwinds. And once again, you realize it's going to have to be another day of atonement next year, another sacrifice. It's going to go on and on and on. Jesus had a different result. Jesus has achieved complete and full forgiveness by the sacrifice of himself. And so there is, Jesus would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, says Hebrews, if he had operated on the same basis as a high priest. But he doesn't. And so because he's offered himself once and for all, the one person who was the perfect sacrifice we are set free. Do you remember the old Easter hymn that goes, There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. That's what it was like. Jesus in all his perfection, the only human being who never sinned, offering himself as the perfect sacrifice to God. And because he's done that, we are set free. Now, I don't know if uh, you ever feel you're not worthy of it. If you ever feel it can't really have happened. If you ever feel so guilty before God about things you've done, you think God can't possibly forgive me this time. Yes, he can. Because Jesus died on the cross for you and me, there is a free and full forgiveness which we need to grasp confidently and be aware of and be thankful for. There's an old story about Robert Burns, a Scottish poet in the 18th century, about how he, once he was walking on the seafront at Ayr, the seaside resort he lived close to, and uh, suddenly a man who was there slipped on the edge of the quay and went straight into the water. And he was coughing and splashing, help, help, I can't swim. And somebody dived in, brought him to the bank and, and, and pumped the, 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 the water out of his lungs. At which the man sort of recovered, put on his hat and thought, thank you. Gave him a sixpence and walked off. And there was a whole crowd of people, oh, where's the skin flick? And, and Robert Burns came up with a perfect one-liner, I think. He said, let him be. This man knows exactly how much his life is worth. <laughs> That's right, isn't it? And this, the, the, the gratitude you have is an index of just how much you think your life is worth. And if you're really grateful for what Jesus did for you to ransom you and bring you back, well, that's what the bread and wine is all about, isn't it? Let's talk about one more thing because I'm taking too long on this one. And that's what it confers because that's important too. You see, it's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. When God forgives you, it's not just, okay. You're off the hook. Now go out and try and do better this time. No, as I've said already, you have a new nature. You have the presence of the Holy Spirit. You have a friendship with God that you never had before. But more, there's stuff to look forward to. One of these days, you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you'll receive a reward for the things you've done for God. You're not a slave of his any longer, you see. You're his friend. And as a result, he wants to reward you for the way that you serve him. And there's an inheritance that's kept for you in heaven that you're going to get as well. And that's all part of the package. It's something you get along with, 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 with everything else. And I'll just talk very briefly about those things. So what does it confer? First of all, a new position. You're in a new place as far as God is concerned. You're part of his family. 
You're accepted in the beloved, in his son, Jesus Christ. And because Jesus has died in your place, you are set free and you now belong with God. But it's not just a new position, it's also a new prospect. You're looking forward, says says Hebrews, uh, at the end of the chapter here, to the fact that Jesus is going to come back. He says in verse 27, listen, you know that death isn't always the end, is it? (laughs) Man is destined to die once, and that's not the end of the story, because after that, they face judgment. And if there's something after death for human beings, there's something after death for Jesus as well. So what does that mean? Jesus dies, and then he comes back to bring judgment? No. Jesus dies, and he comes back to take us home. (laughs) It's great, isn't it? Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he'll appear a second time to judge us all. No, not to bear sin. That's all been done. That's all out of the question. But to bring salvation, rescue, freedom to those who are waiting for him. So there's a new prospect. We're looking forward to someone coming back who's not going to come back to judge and condemn but he's going to come back and say, okay, you're coming home with me now. That's a brilliant thing to be looking forward to, isn't it? When I was at uh, Oxford University, I got the top first-class degree of my year. Sheer fluke. I I mean, my whole life since has proven that. But uh, I got a very, very good degree. And I got what's called a congratulatory first. What happens is, you know, if you're on the border between two classes, they're not sure whether you get a first class or a second class, or a second class and a third class or a third class and a fail, they'll call you back over the summer and they'll ask you some questions. And so what you have to do is get ready for that examination, for that judgment, and get all of your old notes out that you used to sit the exams with and pour through them again and get ready for this big test that's coming up because that will decide your future. But with a congratulatory first, what happens is that you've got such high marks that when you walk into the room... The nine examiners all just stand up and applaud you. And that's it. No test, no examination, no judgment, just reward. And fortunately, my uh, tutor happened to be one of the examiners. So he was able to tip me off two weeks before it happened. And he phoned me up and said, listen, we're going to call you back in again, but don't worry. You'll like it. This is okay. So, shall I revise? Shall I revise? No, no, don't worry. This is going to be all right. So I knew what he was hinting about, although he couldn't tell me. <laughs> and so I did no work. I went down to, 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 to Oxford on the train and uh, walked into the room, and they all stood up and applauded me. And I must admit, Scotsman that I am, I thought, for this I have come 500 miles. <laughs> <laughs> Cost of the train fare. Ah, anyway, but it was worth it. It's a once-for-all experience, a fantastic moment. And the great thing was, I remember that train journey south because it wasn't a problem at all. I knew I was heading to something brilliant. I knew it wasn't judgment I was facing. I knew it was going to be absolutely amazing, and it was. And that's exactly what we're looking forward to, isn't it? A new prospect. Jesus is coming back not to judge, but because we're already through the exam. And the third thing, the final thing, and then I promise I will sit down, (laughs) is a new promise. We've got an inheritance stored for us. And the passage talks about that, doesn't it, once or twice. Verse 15, from the start, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And that's waiting for us there as well. And eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, it hasn't entered into the heart of man to consider just exactly what it is that God's got stored up for those who love him. But we know it's pretty good. At Oxford with me, there was a guy called Tom Wright. 
who's now the theologian N.T. Wright and uh, Bishop of Durham. And he's done his own version of the New Testament called the New Testament for Everyone. That's a ba- not a bad translation. And I like the way he translates 1 Peter chapter 1, which also talks about the inheritance. And here are a couple of verses from it. God has become our father in a second birth into a living hope through the resurrection from the dead of Jesus the Messiah. This has brought us into an incorruptible inheritance which nothing can stain or diminish. At the moment, it's being kept safe for you in the heavens while you are being kept safe by God's power through faith for a rescue that is already in waiting to be revealed in the last time. Brilliant stuff, Hebrews chapter 9, isn't it? 